Hello, everyone. This is Michael Govier from the Cinema 9 Podcast, and you are listening to Pop Goes Your World. If you haven't already, subscribe on iTunes. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and review. And now it's time for our feature presentation. I'm Chris McBrien, and the pop culture from Generation X is everything to me. And I'm Derek Myers, and I'm here to educate Chris on the great pop culture of today's generation. Episode 195, Escape from New York Movie Review. Brian, that's Derek Myers, and this is Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. This episode, we're gonna we're gonna be going back in time, as as we often do, and this time we're gonna be going all the way back to the year 1981 to review the John Carpenter film Escape from New York. But before we do, Derek, what is new in the world of pop culture for you, my friend? Hey, Chris. It's uh, it's been a relatively slow pop culture week for me. Mm, you've been busy I have th- at work. Well, yeah, I, I, have, I, I have been very busy at work. Mm. Yes. Uh, but I have three things today I want to just briefly talk about. I have a book, a movie and a documentary. So we'll start with the book. OK, so now I have an Audible account. And so I'm now listening to a lot more books on audio than I ever used to. So I don't know if you could actually say like I used to say, hey, I read this great book. But if you're listening to it, do you still say, I read this great book? I guess I'd have to say, I listened to this listen great to book. The book. It just yeah. sounds weird. It does. I'm just going to go with the old nomenclature. Sure. So I read this great book, mm-hmm. and it's called The Storyteller, and it's by Dave Grohl, who you may know as the musician from Nirvana and the Foo Fighters. Mm-hmm. And when we did our drummers episode, he made my top five. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, right so anyway, this, so. is a, this is a book by, uh, by Dave Grohl. Mm-hmm. Uh, well-known rock musician, and it's a f- part biography and part just him telling some great rock and roll stories from his life. Um, it, the book's divided into four parts, and I'm in the fourth and final part now. I got like about 45 minutes to go. It was like a 14-hour book. And the last part is just him telling these great stories about his interactions with rock and roll icons. And But it's a fantastic book. I mean... Dave Grohl, and he reads it himself, which is even better. I always love when a book, especially a biography, if it's a you know written by the person and they do their own book on audio, it just makes it that much more interesting to listen to. And it's you can just hear the passion and excitement and the the, the genuine enthusiasm in his voice. It's a great listen. I'm sure it'd be a great read if you were doing it old school. And uh, if you're a music fan, if you like the Foos, if you like Nirvana, if you just like rock and roll. Uh, it is it is great. I can't recommend it strongly enough. I give it a solid A, even an A plus. It's called The Storyteller. It's by Dave Grohl. It just came out last month. Cool. If you know anyone in your life that's a rock and roll music fan and you're looking for a Christmas gift idea, get them this book. They will thank you. It was fantastic. Cool. So that was my book. Yes. My movie. Your movie. We went into our Wayback Machine this nice. week. I love doing our, that. Our way, way, way back machine to mm-hmm. 1960. Oh, wow. You did go And I back. watched the original classic Ocean's Eleven. Oh, wow. That's not what I was with, thinking. The, the, when I think of 1960, I always think of Psycho. So Ocean's oh. Eleven, the one with like Sammy Davis Jr. and like Frank Sinatra. Frank and Sinatra Martin. and the Rat Pack? You yes. bet. 
And nice. now let me tell you, the n- more recent reimagining of Ocean Eleven, mm-hmm. Ocean's Eleven with uh, George Clooney and Brad Pitt and mm-hmm. Matt Damon, never hurts to get that opportunity to say Matt Damon a few times. Matt Damon. He is your boyfriend. You know. Yes, there you go. Uh, I mean, I've seen that version... 10 to 15 times. Okay. At least. I love, I love yeah. that movie. I've seen it all. I mean, I, I love any, anything and everything Vegas. Yeah, it is it's, it's a good movie. I really enjoy it. And I'd seen the original once or twice before, but not in a long, long time. And it was on the Turner classic movies. I managed to record it a few weeks ago. Finally I had a chance to go back and watch it again. And again, I, I thought it held up well for what it was. Mm-hmm. It's in some ways kind of funny because they're, it, you know, it's the same premise as the new one where they, they rob the casinos, right. but just seeing the, the level of, of preparation and like what they have to do to steal from these casinos is so mundane. Like the security just seems so, you know, non-existent compared to what you would expect now, in a casino yeah. today. The level it's of just, technology. Oh my God. Back then. It's, not quite yeah. The it's ridiculous. Yeah. But what I, what I actually found that I loved the most about watching this movie this time around was mm-hmm. the scenes where they did the exterior shots of Las Vegas in 1960 oh, wow, were yeah. craziness. So I'm a big Vegas guy. I've been to Vegas Mm -hmm. 30, 40 times maybe in my life. Like that's my number one go-to vacation spot. I love Vegas. And as soon as COVID stuff goes away, I'm back to Vegas in a heartbeat. And just seeing what Vegas looked like in 1960, knowing so well what it looks like today, it it doesn't even look like the same city, (laughs) except for some very recognizable landmarks. Uh, So yeah, no, it was was pretty awesome. But yeah. I, I, there was definitely that's one of those this is one of those movies where it does certain things do not hold up today like some of the the dialogue and the attitudes especially mm-hmm. their the way they portrayed uh the gender roles the way women yeah. were treated the dialogue about women was pretty pretty despicable um and i cringed a lot a lot of the dialogue was very cringeworthy just some of the things they were saying especially because they were saying it for laughs but mm-hmm. Well, okay. not, not just because it was 1960, but also because it was the Rat Pack. You know, that's probably yeah. why they were doing yeah. it. Yeah, and, and and yeah, it's like they could get away with whatever. And uh, but, you know, not to not to um, like I'm going to say put that aside, but not in a way as to dismiss it and excuse it. But again, the movie itself mm-hmm. on its face was pretty good. So I, I enjoyed revisiting this one from 1960. Another thing so, that I always think about when I think of Ocean's Eleven is <clears throat> I was a big fan of SCTV. Back in the 80s. God, I loved SCTV. Mm-hmm. And they did a spoof of it and they called it Maudlin's 11. And it was based okay. on, the, they had this fictitious uh, talk show called the Sammy Maudlin Show. And it was just basically these kind of cheesy, smarmy Hollywood types that just all just, you know, support each other and just laugh at each other's jokes and it's just crap. And, and it was like Maudlin's 11. It was all those guys that had to, you know, break in and steal money. So that's always something I remember. So. Nice. Uh, and you had a third thing as well. Yes. My third one is a documentary. For 40 days and 40 nights, watch documentaries. He likes to learn about the world. It's Derek's documentaries. Derek's documentaries. One of, one of my stronger songwriting uh, entries, too, by the way. Well, it's brief, and that, yeah. that certainly helps its strength. That's why it's so good. Uh, so I watched the first of a four-part documentary series yep. that came out in 2019, and mm-hmm. it's called Punk, 
and it's about punk music. Oh, I'll read cool. you the, the, okay. the brief synopsis here sure. they have in uh, Wikipedia, because I think this sums it up better than I ever could. Is it as brief punk. as the song I just played? Uh, it, it's even briefer. Oh, nice. Punk explores the music, the fashion, the art, and the do-it-yourself attitude of a subculture of self-described misfits and outcasts. Each episode focuses on an individual era of punk, beginning with proto-punk in the 1960s and up until the present day. So I only got a chance to watch the first episode, but I actually caught most of the last episode, which is what made me aware of this series in the first place, because then they reran it later in the week. And again, I, I'm just on a music kick this week, and uh, it was fantastic. One of the producers is Iggy Pop, who is featured heavily, obviously, mm -hmm. in a series about punk music. Yeah. And it's got a lot of interview it was filmed in 2019 so it's got a lot of interviews with people who are still alive that were around during the you know the rise of punk and you get a lot of first-hand accounts and uh they have a, a remarkable amount of documentation like original documentation from that time period they have a lot of stills they have a lot of video footage they have a lot of audio footage so it's not like sometimes you watch a documentary and because the, the, the documentation doesn't exist, they do like recreations, but they don't have to do that for any of this. They have so much of it has been recorded. Now, some of the recordings, the quality is kind of crappy, but that sort of works when it's about punk. It's not supposed to be polished and it's, it's really good. And I talked to a friend of mine. I said, Oh, you should watch this. And she was like, I've already seen it and it's fantastic. You're going to love every second of it. So again, if if uh, you're into rock and roll, you're into punk, or or that's maybe something that's influenced the music you are into today, this four part documentary series from 2019, I think it's actually available on YouTube for free. But uh, I mean, they were showing it here in Canada on the Crave Channel, so that was uh, that was my other one. I got the other ones on my recorder. I can't wait to finish watching them this weekend. This week, I got something. <laughs> Earlier in the week, my wife was outside doing some yard work or something like that, and she gets talking to the neighbors. And they get talking about renovations, I guess. So our neighbors invited my wife into their house to, to show, I guess, all these renovations that they did in their kitchen or something. So now we recently did renovations in our entire main floor. Like we did the kitchen, the laundry, the bathroom, we did the whole thing, right? So anyway, so I guess my wife and the neighbors get talking about renovations and so she she's like well why don't you come on over to our our place and and take a look we'll show you what we did on our main floor so the neighbors come into our house and i'm sitting there in the living room watching tv as i want to do you know did you have pants on at least <laughs> yes just i was in my underwear just eating a big block of cheese so anyway well i mean it was tuesday so yeah, that's exactly. that's par for the course for you bud I, when i was in university my in first year i was in residence and they nicknamed me couch potato so i watched a lot of tv i, I didn't get a lot of girls in first year university just because it was a couch potato anyway so the neighbor the, the wife she says she says hi and she's like she's like, oh what are you watching and i said because we have this really big screen tv that i just put in and, she, and I said, oh, I'm watching an episode of Win, Lose, or Draw from 1985. And she's like, no way. That's my favorite TV show of all time. And she's like, honey, get in here. Guess what? He's watching on TV, Win, Lose, or Draw. I was like, they're like, can we join you? I'm like, grab a seat. <laughs> Why not? I don't know. I'm always happy to share my love of Gen X pop culture with anyone and everyone. So, you know, Derek, I think that's what's probably going to bring us all closer you know, as a human race, you know, game shows from the 80s. So that's what I think. You know, another thing that can bring us close together is humor. So here's your dad joke of the week. 
So I thought since we were doing Escape from New York this week that I'd do a New York sort of slash pop culture joke, like kind of a crossover thing, okay? So Derek, what is the difference between Middle Earth and New York City? Ooh. Wow. I have absolutely no idea. The Too soon? Yeah, too soon. It's too been soon. 20 years. Too soon. I don't even think that's going to make it past the censors. So, man, I'm going to hell. You should just bleep out the whole joke. <laughs> this analogy's no good. I'm an old man, and oh my no, God, and I wish it was a picture tube. Like, hey, put that one in your pipe and smoke it. Oh my God, the world could come to an end. I mean, I know Derek. He wasn't really mad at me for that. I'm not even going to go down that road. It's like watching Coronation Street. I swear I will not kill anybody. The brother from another planet. Boo, boo, turn the sound on. My goodness okay so a, a couple of weeks back we held a pop culture fantasy draft where we each drafted a team of movies tv shows and movies from 1981 and we sent the two lists off to our panel of judges oh how'd that go by the way derek i, I can't remember uh you're uh, you won that one hands down <laughs> okay so anyway so then coming out of the draft we each had to pick a movie from 1981 to review here on the show. So last week, I went with the James Bond entry for your eyes only. And this week, it was over to you, Derek. And you selected John Carpenter's Escape from New York. So to start us off this week, maybe you can talk a little bit about you know why you selected this movie and why you felt it was important to go back and, and give it a watch and, and review it here on the podcast. So, so take it away. Okay, so we were trying to find movies from 1981, since that's the year we did our draft of, and we had actually already done quite a few movies from 1981, so I don't want to say there was not a lot to choose from, but you're, you know, the the biggest ones were, were we've already covered, so we had to dig a little deeper, and when I was looking at the list of the sort of, quote-unquote, what was left... This one jumped out at me right away. So I've seen this before. I've seen it a few times. I haven't seen it in a long time, though. I remembered enjoying it. I, I'm a big fan of John Carpenter's work, especially the stuff he did in the 80s. I remember the movie having a great cast. I I love all movies, any movies that have to do with the whole post-apocalyptic future. Mm -hmm. so you this, and Yancey love that genre. Yeah, and yeah. my wife loves this, too. So, yeah. I, you know, that's that's a genre that's right up our alley. I mean, if they had thrown some zombies in, we would have been right there. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I hadn't seen it in a while, and I thought, you know what? We I don't feel we do enough action and adventure kind of movies on this podcast. We tend to do a lot of comedies, especially the early, like the 80s and 70s stuff. We do comedies, and we tend to do more like prestige dramas and stuff like that. But I, I find we don't do enough action movies, and so I thought this one sort of checked us by. It's like it was post-apocalyptic. It was the 80s. It was an action movie. It was John Carpenter. I'm like, I remembered there being a lot to like about this, so I thought, let's give it another go. And I was pretty confident I was going to enjoy it as much as I remembered it. But if you recall a few weeks back, there was something else I'd said this. I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember liking this fondly. And then I went back and went, oh, boy, it did not live up to my memory. So I was I was hopeful, but I was kind of a little nervous that maybe it wouldn't hold up so much. But uh, no, I had a chance to watch it this week. And uh, and now we'll have a chance to talk about it. Uh, mm -hmm. What about you? Had you seen this before? So so I, I'd never seen this movie. And, wow, and the, okay. the, the first thing I want to say is this movie was really hard to find, like really, yeah. really difficult. So, Derek, did, did you have a copy on DVD or, or did you find it? Well, I, I honestly, I thought I owned this, which was 
part of the reason I select it because mm-hmm. we've run into this challenge before too. We, we say, Oh, this would be a great movie to do. Yeah. And then it's like, we spend half the week trying to find a copy yeah. of it. I, I did not own it. I thought I, I even went into my VHS collection thinking, well, maybe wow. I have the video. I did not. And so I thought, well, that's no problem. I'll, I'll just go on Amazon and buy it. And it was like 60 bucks. Like it was a ridiculous price. And although, I, I mean, this is half-assed internet research because I didn't actually look it up, but usually when this happens and we can't find a movie and it's and the copies that are available are that ridiculously expensive, it's because it's out of print and it's usually due to legal reasons. Mm-hmm. Some sort of legal fight about who owns the rights or maybe there's music that's presented. Like often it's songs that they don't have the rights for and things like that. So I got to think that's the reason it's not available is something to do with a legal battle. But man, oh man, was this tough to find. I finally did find it, but whew, it was not easy. Yeah, no, me too. And and uh, I I looked every. I, there's a DVD store. I've mentioned this before. There's a DVD store here in town, and I usually go there and I can find obscure titles. I can find like every episode of you know every season of TV series and stuff from the seventies and eighties. It's great. They didn't even have it, so I had to rent it through Amazon Prime. Now, as we all know, I absolutely love pop culture. From this period of time and and i it, think it might even be safe to say 1981 is probably one of my favorite if not my number one favorite pop culture year of all time but like i said funny enough i had never seen this movie so for one reason or another i don't know why it just always kind of flew under the radar for me i guess so now i that's what i like about doing this podcast too because it allows me to go back sometimes and watch movies that i haven't seen in 40 years or or maybe had never seen at all and especially that holds true for the newer movies that you nominate because i've never watched those if it wasn't for you but now that i've had the opportunity to go back and watch this derek i have i have one thing to say to you my friend yeah what's that you owe me one hour and 39 minutes oh jeez this movie was awful and I know oh. you have friends out there that are like, this is their favorite movie of all time. I'm going to get hate mail. I know it. I don't care. Oh, I know this is going to be an unpopular take. It's it's a it's a cult classic. There's people that love it. I know, I know, I know. This movie sucks so bad. My God. It's, it's, and, and you know, it's kind of cool too, because you and I have had this conversation on air and off air about how it's sometimes better if we disagree on movies because it makes for more of an entertaining, you know, podcast. So this one should be entertaining. This to me. Well, it, hang on. You yeah. assume that I I liked this movie. Mm. Oh, this should be good. Oh wow. So did you enjoy it? Oh, I loved it. It was so good. <laughs> oh, it was geez. way better than I remembered oh, it. Oh, I couldn't geez. believe how much oh, I loved revisiting this movie. <clears throat> really? I don't remember it being this good. Oh. I was. I was I couldn't I, I can't wait to find a high definition Blu-ray 4K collector all the extras version of this for a reasonable price. I can't wait to watch this movie again. I loved it. It's it's nothing more than a B movie, and 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 that's not necessarily a bad thing. I like B movies. I like a lot of B movies, but not this one. This thing just reeks a bad movie from beginning to end, and. I'll be honest, I think the topic of B-movies just might keep coming back as we talk about this, because that's all that this was for me, and it was not even a very good one at that. Oh, jeez, I'll tell you. you I, don't, I don't see how you can be so wrong about <laughs> so many things, but I especially know. this movie. This was so great. Oh. There was so much to like about this. Even, jeez. like, I was worried that sometimes when you go back to, the, and we, I think mm-hmm. just in a movie in the last few weeks, we've talked about, like, 
well, the soundtrack ruined it for me because right. I didn't feel it hold up. Or, oh, it's just some of the things they depict. It's like, well, that's so outdated now, especially when it's a movie from 1981 that depicted a futuristic 1997 that is now over 20 years in our past. Like that can be a hard pill to swallow sometimes when you're like, oh, my God, where did they? But I loved it. I thought it was great. I loved so many things about it. And that's not to say it was perfect, but. I think for what it was, it had so much potential, and I think it lived up to all that potential. I love this. All right. Well, let's break it down. It was directed by John Carpenter, who I who I think we should get to in a bit. I want to talk about him. And it was written by Carpenter and Nick Castle, who actually played Michael Myers in the original Halloween. Um, it stars Kurt Russell, obviously, Lee Van Cleef, Adrian Barbeau, Harry Dean Stanton, and Ernest, Ernest Borgnine. Uh, it was made on a, I guess, a shoestring budget by Hollywood standards of $6 million. It grossed $25 million at the North American box office. So so let's get into this because this should be fun. I always like to start by looking at the, the box office, you know, from, sure. the, 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 from the year it came out. <clears throat> so it finished 24th at the box office that year. Like it made $25 million. It was um, movies like Fort Apache, The Bronx, The Jazz Singer, Only When I Laugh. They all finished ahead of it, but it did, it did outgross Neighbors, which was, you know, a bad movie, but I liked it because it was Belushi and the final conflict and Outland and heavy metal, even I thought were pretty good, uh, but it outgrossed those. So it did okay. I mean, obviously it made its budget back, you know, you know, and then some, I also want to get into the cast a little bit. I think is important. That's one thing that stood out to me, especially going into this movie. I was like, wow, there's a lot of people that I know, you know. So then I really started to think about this. I started to reflect on the, the cast, especially after I watched it. Kurt Russell, I want to start with. Yep. I think a lot of people think of Kurt Russell as this Hollywood icon, you know, this legendary actor. But when you get right down to it, that's not really the case. Like you could make the argument that if it wasn't for John Carpenter, Kurt Russell wouldn't even really have much of a career. In Hollywood. Well, okay, hold on. I think that's a bold statement. Yeah. We're going we're gonna to back that up a little bit. Okay. So one of the things that I liked about this movie that I think a lot of people liked about this movie is before this, Kurt Russell had a pretty decent career as a child actor doing things, a lot of Disney movies, a lot yeah. of, you know, movies of the week, that kind of thing. And that was, that was his reputation. You know, he's the, the boy next door. He's the, the kid that can do that kind of stuff. And this was like his sort of, uh, you know, coming of age movie where they cast him as this badass. And, and from what I was reading, like there was a lot of people in Hollywood and in the movie industry that thought, Oh, this is bad casting. And apparently he was absolutely not the first choice to play this by a lot of executives. There was a lot of, uh, you know, people who passed on it or people who were suggested. And then for whatever, like I know Charles Bronson's name was thrown yeah. around. People were like, mm -hmm. well, you might be a little bit too old. Right. And so there was a lot of other people that were either considered for the role or even offered the role and one way or the other he ended up getting the, the role and I think that this was an opportunity for him to change his Hollywood image and then he does this and a couple years later he does Big Trouble in Little China mm -hmm. and now you start to see him as more of a hey maybe he can do action stuff instead of just you know the family friendly look at me I'm the pretty older brother in the family kind of roles and um and I, I mean, that was part of the thing that I liked about Kurt Russell. Like, I remember 
my first experience seeing Kurt Russell, I remember this movie from when I was very young. I probably shouldn't have seen it, but I not in the theater, but I saw it on video, like not long after it came out. I remember seeing him in Overboard. I remember seeing him in Big Trouble in Little China. Like those were sort of the three movies I saw him in when I like the first movies I ever saw him in. And uh, and I mean, he's worked consistently his whole life. He has been in some good movies he's been in some crappy movies as many actors have oh sure but he's every so often he gets like these movies that are either huge movies that he's in like an ensemble cast or that he's a big part of or like this and big trouble in little china where they become like cult classics where there's this huge ground swelling and this huge following for decades afterwards um and i mean kurt russell's still working to this day and it's like even now as an older guy like it's he's been able to continually I don't want to say reinvent himself because a lot of times in his more recent stuff, he's sort of been leaning on what you already know about his previous roles. But but this to me, like when I think when, when you know someone's like, talk to me about Kurt Russell, the actor, like this is the role that I always think of. And from interviews with him, he said this is his all time favorite role he ever played. So that, that's that's he's, it for me. He's charismatic. I'll give you that just in general as a, as a as a person. Kurt Russell is. But really, if you take away John Carpenter's stuff. Like, like it, there's this movie, there's The Thing, and Big Oh my God, I totally China. forgot The Thing. Yeah. You're absolutely right. We got to do that on a future podcast, bud. That's, that's, that movie was pretty good. That it's was, a great that, movie. That one I love bad. that one. And, 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 then, and then Big Trouble in Little China, like you mentioned. But, but if you take those away, he didn't really do all that much. Like, he, he was pretty good as Herb Brooks in Miracle. And, and, and Big Trouble in Little China, it's a fun movie to watch. But like you said, his earlier work was just these, like, lightweight Disney comedies. I, I just think Kurt Russell isn't exactly this legendary actor that some people make him out to be. I just, I think he's more of a B-movie actor, if you get right there. Well, again, I wouldn't, uh, so there's definitely, I wouldn't necessarily say a B-movie actor. He's definitely been in a lot of B-movies, but he could certainly carry a movie as well. I mean, you think, and, and I'm not necessarily saying like billion dollar productions, but like he was the lead of the ensemble in Tombstone in the 90s. He was a lead of the Stargate movie in the 90s. He was in a, a great, fun, guilty pleasure movie of mine called Executive Decision, where a plane gets hijacked. He was in a fantastic thriller in 1997 called Breakdown. He was in a, an action movie the next year, nineteen eighty eight, called Soldier, where he was really good. Again, he's 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 been in a lot of stuff, and more recently, he's been in some of the Tarantino stuff. He was in the Hateful Eight. He was great in that. Um, you know, he's had he's consistently worked, and he's been mm -hmm. good in just about everything he's been in. Okay, uh, Lee Van Cleef. I want to talk about. You mentioned recently that you watched um, Sergio Leone's Spaghetti Western trilogy. Right. Yeah. Well, I haven't watched the third one yet, but I watched uh, Fistful of Dollars a few dollars more. So Lee Van Cleef was in the last two, right? Yeah. Because he was in yeah. Fistful of Dollars and um, or he wasn't in Fistful. Of he dollars. was in. He wasn't in that one. A few he dollars, dollars more, good more and good bad. Day. Yeah. Right. And and the thing is, he was great in the one that I watched. He was always known as this B movie villain, you know, and, yeah. and he did a lot of his work back in in TV back in the 60s, like back when TV Westerns were a big deal. But everything that he did between those spaghetti westerns and this movie in 1981 was basically just low-budget B-movie crap. Like things like Captain Apache and El Condor and crap like that. And then Ernest Borgnine is in this. He plays the cabbie, obviously. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They apparently added this character to the movie when they realized it was just an action movie and they needed some, I guess, you know, quote-unquote depth in the script you know, or at least a little bit of light humor anyway. Mm -hmm. Ernest Borgnine is an Oscar winner. Like he won an Academy Award 
for Best Actor back in 55 for Marty. And he was on McHale's Navy on TV in the 60s. But personally, I will always remember him as Ted Denslow in Basketball. I was just about to say Basketball. (laughs) You kids today and your Pac-Man video games and your Zima soft drinks and your Dan Fogelberg records. Love that. Um, And but I, I get, you know, where they're writing the script and the producers and the writers, you know, probably felt like they needed some lighter characters. But I have no idea what the hell he was doing in this movie. I really don't. It was, he seemed odd to me. Yeah. It, it, the more you start to analyze some of the specifics, some of it makes a little bit less sense. Like if you've got this, uh, again, I'll keep using the term post-apocalyptic, even though it's now in the past. So you've got this prison state that is now New York <laughs> City. And clearly it's uh, lawlessness has taken over and tribal, like it's a lot of tribal groups and and gangs and things. Why would you have a tax? Like who's going to pay and then pay for a taxi cab? So I was really not really clear on his role in society and why Mm -hmm. nobody just shot him and took his cab. So I'm thinking maybe there's supposed to be a little more depth there. He's like, Mm -hmm. because he seemed to know everybody. So what's going on? Again, if you think about it too hard, it's going to hurt your brain. But yeah, yeah, B-movies will do that to you. So so the rest of the cast, I want to get to these guys. This cast is interesting. Hang on, hang on. I want to go back to Lee Van Cleef. Oh, sure. Yeah. So as a young person, my introduction to Lee Van Cleef was Mm -hmm. in the 1984 TV series that I'm sure we will all remember fondly called The Master, where... He plays an aging ninja who takes like this young kid under his wing, a white kid, of course, because all the ninjas were white on TV in the 80s. And, and, and Lee Van Cleef is such and an Lee Van Cleef Asian was the character. Yeah, like was. And so as a nine, 10 year old kid, I thought, oh, my God, this is fantastic. I'm sure if you go back and look at it now, it is going to be like stink up the room. Yeah. But that was where I first remembered seeing him. Oh, so when I've since seen him in other things, I'm like, that's the guy from the master as opposed to everybody else in the world. Who's like, Oh, that's the guy from the spaghetti Westerns or that's, you know, mm-hmm. his better works. It's like, that's where I remember him from. <laughs> we, all, we all remember these guys from other stuff. Tom nope. Atkins. So he was in lethal weapon. Remember he was Michael yeah. Hunsacker. He was Amanda yep. Hunsacker's dad, the, yep. the, the girl that jumped out the window. He was another B movie actor. Like he did a lot of, he did a lot of TV when he started out. Like he did like the fall guy and TJ hooker, but mostly he just did B movies. He was in Halloween three season of the witch and night of the creeps and stuff. So he was another B movie guy, but another cast member that jumped out to me was Donald Pleasance. So obviously John Carpenter likes working with the same actors over and over again. And and that you could say that might hold true for a lot of directors. Sure. Yeah, for sure. That's fair. But I think in this case, it just, it seems like there's this core group of B-movie actors and crew that all just keep working together, you know? But but Donald Pleasance, he he played Blofeld in the Sean Connery Bond films. We mentioned him just the other week. Uh, he was in The Great Escape that we reviewed. Like, that's where I remember yeah. him from, The Great Escape, yeah. And he was in Halloween, obviously, as the doctor trying to get Michael Donald, Myers. never saw Halloween. Oh. Not a big horror movie guy. But you like John Carpenter. I do. Uh, Adrian Barbeau. So, oh, love her. So so she was on TV in Maud. And, and and again, she's another one that mostly had a career in B-movies. You know, Creep Show and Swamp Thing. Swamp Thing. Yeah. This. I, I remember there was quite a backlash against her from a lot of people back in the day. 
Mostly, I think, because they felt that she didn't really have any real acting talent, you know, which you could argue. And there was always this perception, rightly or wrongly, that the only reason that she got roles as an actress was because of her chest. Oh, my, my, my. No comment. <laughs> <laughs> that was always the thing with Adrian Barbeau. It was like, hey, a lot of movies yeah. cast women just because they're yeah. eye candy. I, I mean, it's not... I mean, you know, it's it's not cool, but it's at the mm. same time, if it's going to sell tickets, like we already talked about how 80s movies were full of shameless boob shots simply to get boys into theaters to see it, uh, you know, and I don't, I don't, honestly, I don't know. I don't remember any movies where she actually shows her chest, but she no, certainly no, shows no, no, off no. her she, cleavage a lot. She never um, did nude scenes, just she had, you no. know, a, a very pro- prodigious, you know, chest. Even in this run, movie, like you just... It's there on the screen the whole time. Like it's yeah. like, um, Harry Dean Stan. I want to talk about too. He obviously died back in 2017. He did a lot of movies in his career, but like Lee Van Cleef, he got started out on TV back in the sixties with those old TV Westerns, right? Like, cause he did have gun will travel and the Rifleman and, and rawhide. And I think, you know, he was pretty well respected as an actor. Although, although what, probably more so by Hollywood insiders and, and sort of true fans as opposed mm-hmm. to like mainstream audiences. Although when we, when I was watching this, my wife recognized him. She's like, oh, isn't he the dad from Pretty in Pink? You know, I was just about to say, that's where yeah. I remember from the dad in Pretty in Pink. And, and he, he was, was an alien. alien. Yeah. yeah. Those are the and, two roles I always remember him for. And for me, one role I will always remember him for was in this movie called Young Doctors in Love. And he played this. How can I? I'm guessing he wasn't one of the young doctors. No, no, he was kind of like this hygienically challenged doctor. Like, so there was this scene. Oh man, there was this scene where he tries to get the the young interns to taste urine. Like, and 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 Michael McKeon turns the tables on him. My God, it was so funny. Oh jeez, but you know, as as much as you know, we can love Harry Dean Stanton. Really. He was also kind of a B-movie actor for a lot of his career, you know? So again, there's just so many. It just keeps recurring, all these B-movies. And another guy that I want to mention is Isaac Hayes. So, obviously, I loved him as the guy that sang the theme from Shaft. And and he won an Oscar for that, too, by the way, back in 71. I'm not really sure why, if you really think about it. It's pretty much kind of a spoken word song for the most part, but he's got such a great voice. And then he basically wallowed in obscurity for years until he showed up as chef on South Park. If yep. you remember, like, oh, children, I'm going to make love down by the fire. You know, <laughs> my, my salty chocolate balls, children. But he, qu- I remember he quit that show because uh, Parker and Stone did an episode mocking Scientology, you know, which he's part of, Right. And I remember, I remember there was this controversy because he said he, that he quit because, you know, they're making fun of religion, which is BS because he had no issues when they were making fun of Catholics or Jews or anything. It was just, you know, but going back to the B movie thing, if you think about it, even Shaft was just this black exploitation B movie. So again, it's just all this B movie people over and over and over again. So, okay. So hang on let me let, i want to stop you and, and, and sort of take a sidestep here for a minute i guarantee this is going to come back to where we were mm-hmm. when you're picking your fantasy sports line and i know when you do bets you can like draft the team you're looking 
for value. You don't necessarily want to, if okay. you have a certain amount of dollars, you don't mm -hmm. necessarily go out and buy the number one line on the number one team because then the rest of your slots in your lineup are going to be like fourth line goons who barely get any ice time. You need to pick and choose carefully. Maybe take the second line here. Maybe take the third line here. You know, and I think that's really what we've seen here with this movie is Carpenter had, a, as you mentioned, a very limited budget and needed to do the best with what he had. And I think that's why you got as many of these what you keep calling B movie actors is because he knew he could count on them to deliver what he needed for this movie to work. He did the best he could with what he had. You know, uh, he got people like Ernest Borgnine, who, like you said, he won an Oscar. Sure, it was 30 years before this, but clearly he's a talented individual. Uh, you know, and 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 well, like some of these other folks, they, they have demonstrated that they can be great which is not to say that this was, you know, a great script and they were given these great soliloquies where they could go on stage and, and do their stuff. But I think I don't think any of them had any disillusions when they took these roles of what this movie was going to be like and what they were going to be asked to do. But at the same time, I never got the sense that any of them were phoning it in. And I think that helped the movie is that you you, you do the best with what you've got. You've got your 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 most recognizable star out front in Kurt Russell but you support them with other people who, yeah, they may be B actors, but they're talented enough that it helps the movie. And I, I think when you can get this many recognizable <coughs> names in your movie down to your seventh, eighth, ninth person on the call sheet, mm -hmm. there's a lot of movies where you recognize the first two names and then the next 10 names, you're like, I never heard of any of these people. That's not the case with this. We've just spent 10 minutes going down this whole roster. Like, I think this is a great cast. Yeah. So... I think it is what it is for, but it had to be given the given the budgetary restrictions. Yeah, you know one other cast member I want to mention. I don't know if you noticed it or not, but the Secretary of State, the actor's name was Charles Cyphers. Mm -hmm. I recognized him right away. He was in Major League. He was Charlie Donovan. Remember the GM of the Cleveland Indians? Oh, yeah. he's, yes. he's the one that calls Jake Taylor. He's like, "Hey, we want you to come to spring training." He's like, "Is that you, Tolbert?" It's not funny. My knees are killing me. And then when he says, um, maybe we should give these guys a series of fines for good play. Fines for good play. Yeah, yeah. Maybe like a, a bonus to the guy voted least valuable player or whatever. So I recognized him right away. I was like, oh, that guy. I recognized his voice, but I yeah. couldn't place it. So as yeah. soon as you said Major League, I'm like, oh my God, yes. that's totally where I know yeah. him from. Yeah, you're absolutely right. All right. So a little bit about the movie. So like you mentioned, it takes place in the future, you know, from 1981. And... New York, or at least Manhattan at least, it's, it's locked down, and no one can get in or out. I did think it was kind of cool when you see Man the Manhattan skyline at night, and there's like zero lights on. That was kind of a cool image, you know? Mm -hmm. And I will say, Kurt Russell's character has all the makings of an iconic movie character. He's got this great name, Snake Bliskin, yeah. and he wears yeah. the, the boots and the jeans and the, and, the, and the tank top and the eye patch and everything. So, I mean, like, everything was there as I'm watching this movie. I'm like, oh, boy, this this could be really good. And then it starts out with the president's plane going down to Manhattan. Like I say, it's just all the makings of a really cool and I really wanted to like this movie. So, one thing, when the plane, when the president's plane flies into Manhattan and it heads right for these buildings and it crashes, total shades of 9-11. You know, obviously, something happened, you know, didn't happen when this came out, but it just... That's what I thought of right away. Did 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 that evoke any anything for you? Nope, not at all. Didn't even didn't even go there. Yeah, that's the first thing I thought of. And then and then when they inject those 
those shots into Pliskin's neck. It's like this double gun thing. I thought that was kind of cool. They, they, they put some kind of microchip injected into yeah, it. They, again, they, yeah, again, it was just a plot device. Yeah. So I, I wanted to get to this and it's, let's sort of jump into it now. Mm-hmm. The, the idea of a movie that's on a timer, the idea of the ticking clock. And they told them you have 24 hours because in 24 hours, this thing we injected in your neck is going to blow up. It's a, it's an explosive device. You're going to get your head blown off. And so I always love a movie that has this kind of built in suspense of no matter what else is happening, our hero only has in this case, 24 hours. So like at one point in the movie where he gets knocked unconscious and he wakes up, it's like clearly hours have passed and it's like, Oh boy, man, his ticking clock is getting down there. Or even right at the beginning of the movie where they go, you can take the elevator down to the 50th floor. Then you got to walk the rest of the way. And when he gets down to the bottom, you see him look at his clock and it's like, damn, he's already eaten up like 90 minutes just going down all those steps. So I just, I love this, this trope, this convention, this storytelling device of there's a ticking clock and we know no matter what else is going to happen in this movie, somebody wants this thing to happen by this time. And it just gives you that extra motivation, gives the characters extra motivation, which in turn gives you as the audience extra motivation to like want to see what happens. Ooh, well, what's going to happen when this countdown, you know, gets to zero. So I, I love I, this is one of those tropes that I actually love. So I, I was very happy. I could not disagree with you more. The whole film is based on the fact that they're racing against the clock. But there's zero suspense in the movie. Like, zero. Like, it just... Oh, it's so poorly made. Oh, I, I didn't get any suspense out of the movie. Wow. So. One thing when... when the Other thing I liked about at the beginning of the movie, when the president went down, they eject him in this, like, red egg thing. Yeah. It, it reminded me of Mork's spaceship. Oh, yeah. Mork, from, Mork and Mitty, just in red, you know. Um, so, I probably missed this. And it, it wouldn't surprise me if they said it. I just didn't realize it. But why did they recruit Kurt Russell to go get the president? Was it because he escaped from New York and he knew the way out? No, they just knew that he had the, the they were in a situation where they didn't have any other options. And it was just sort of a coincidence where he was being sentenced to New York prison at the same time that this other thing happened. So they're like, well, geez, he's here. Oh. We, we think he is capable enough of actually retrieving the president in the ticking clock 24 hours that we've given him. And the, he, his character and the Hollock, whatever, uh, I can't remember the actor's name, the, the John Van Cleef, mm-hmm. uh, who is the, who is the warden. Pardon me, Lee Van Cleef. Yeah. He's, the, um, he's the warden of the New York prison. And it seems like they have either a shared history or at least a mutual um, familiarity with each other because he has that scene in the office at the beginning where he's reading through and he's like, oh, it's just like when you did this thing in Leningrad and they, they talk some military history of of a future history that in 1981 hasn't happened yet, but it, it sort of gives these characters a little bit of credibility where they've clearly got a military past, they've got this training so that you don't, you don't see this guy walk in and go, well, who the hell is this friggin' guy? It's like, well, that is what we think at the beginning and then in this two-minute scene he rhymes off a few things that this guy's done and you're like oh okay well clearly this guy's some sort of military superhero now how and whatever he did to get sentenced to new york prison is never really flushed out in the movie although i was reading some behind the scenes stuff and there were scenes that were deleted and there's like a, a novel adaptation of the of the movie that has some of that detail in it but if it's never shown on screen the audience obviously has no idea what it is but at the same time i didn't really care Obviously, it was something that uh, that 
like it didn't seem like you were sending shoplifters to the New York prison. Mm-hmm. Like, the people that went to New York prison were clearly the worst of the worst. And when they start talking about this guy being from the military, you're like, well, he probably did some pretty bad stuff. So that's all I needed to know. I was fine with that. The special effects in this movie. I want to talk about for a second. The the graphics when 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 the gliders coming in and he's looking at like the computer images and it was that green wireframe type graphic. Yeah. That was a real thing back in the 70s and 80s. I remember there was a video game where you drove a tank and you had to shoot at stuff. It was called Battle Zone. And it used sure. those kind of graphics. Like that, those are kind of like the, the go-to state-of-the-art graphics for a while back then. I remember those. So I, I saw that and I was like, oh, that reminds me of Battle Zone. That was pretty cool. Um, there was a scene where he shoots an outline in the wall and then yeah. crashes through it. I yeah. felt like that that should be some sort of B-movie trope. Like it certainly feels like one, but I don't think I've ever seen that before or, or since for that matter. But it, that, just, yeah. that feels like a kind of a B-movie thing or like a quid of a cool thing to do. See, and I thought from my point of view, again, having seen a lot of these post-apocalyptic zombie kind of movies, ammunition is always becomes like one of the most valuable commodities because in a prison world, nobody's making new bullets. True. A gun is great, but if there's no bullets in the gun, the gun is useless. So it seemed to me that when he got there, he he literally had what he brought in with him, which was probably not a ridiculous amount of stuff. And then he wastes all these bullets shooting through the wall. It looked like it was drywall. Just run through it. It's drywall. You don't need to shoot it. It just seemed – that was the first thing where my mind went was, what an unnecessary waste of your limited resources. And then, I mean, not too long after that, he gets captured and they take away his guns anyway. Right. So it really didn't make that big a difference. But from a post-apocalyptic survival point of view – that's a big no-no. But as this was one of sort of the earlier movies in this kind of genre, you can forgive them for doing silly things like that. A lot of times when we we talk about these movies, you always mention the score. Yes. And it's really struck me when when they first got into New York. Um, it's The score in this movie, it's very similar to Halloween in parts. Now, you wouldn't know because you haven't seen Halloween, but just Halloween had this very simple few notes like playing kind of this eerily playing kind of thing. And it was because John Carpenter did the score. I was going to say, movie. didn't Carpenter Halloween, compose yeah. some of the movie himself, the yeah. music himself? Yeah. So it, it's, it really struck me. I was like, oh, that's almost the same score as Halloween. So just something I thought. So this is, uh, and I mentioned the opposite of this in, in a movie mm-hmm. not too long ago, where the wrong score in, the, in, in a good movie can kill it. And as much as this score definitely felt 80s, I also felt that it was appropriate for this kind of movie and was sort of futuristic while still being retro. And it contradicted my criticism from a previous movie where it was like, I actually dug the, I dug the music. I thought it worked. I thought, I thought it was, although it was very like synthesized and techno sounding, which is very eighties in and of itself. It was, as you just described, sort of minimalistic. Mm -hmm. It wasn't overproduced. It wasn't overdone. It was just, a series of a few notes done in a way to, to you know, to to mirror the action on screen. I actually thought it worked very well. I liked it a lot. Well, and and, and if you think this movie was low budget, man, you got to watch Halloween. Like, I mean, he made that on nothing. And so I think John Carpenter, you know, being used to working with low budgets, had to cut corners. And one of the ways to do that was, well, I'll just do the score myself, you know, kind of thing. And then that's kind of where that came from. I have a question for you. The, the movie poster. 
has an image of the head of the Statue of Liberty laying on the mm-hmm. ground in like yep. downtown Manhattan. But that never happens in the movie. No. Probably because no. they had no money to pull off the special effects for it. But, but, but I, I, why do they put it in the movie poster? Well, as you say, I don't think it was needed in the movie. I think putting it in the poster immediately gives you the, the in, in one quick flash image, this is the symbol of New York, the symbol of America, the symbol of freedom, the symbol of superiority. And here it is demolished in the streets of New York. I think in one quick image, it just sums up right away. Freedom is gone. Democracy is gone. The the superiority of New York City is gone. Like this is because because New York becomes a prison. Like this is not a place where the the free are put. This is literally the place where the condemned and the imprisoned are put. And the city has been destroyed. And I think this is a fantastic image to to show the the head of the Statue of Liberty destroyed, removed from the statue itself. Like nothing says you know, screw your freedom like the destroyed Statue of Liberty. I think it's a fantastic poster. It's a fantastic image. It sums up what the movie's all about in one quick one quick picture. And even though this this isn't in the movie, whether or not this uh, whether or not the head of the statue was supposed to have been removed or the statue was supposed to have been destroyed is irrelevant. And the fact that we don't see it on screen, I don't think matters at all. I think when you're trying to sell tickets in 1981, you're trying to put bums in seats. And you've got all the movie posters in the in the marquee all lined up in a row. And you see this, you know exactly what this movie's going to be about. And I love it. I love this poster. I think it's one of the great movie posters. One of the things uh, in this movie that jumped out to me, too, was that station wagon. So there's, yeah. there's this scene where Isaac Hayes is driving around in this station wagon. And it's got these chandeliers on the hood and a disco ball hanging from yep. the rearview mirror. Yep. So my best friend when I was a teenager had a station wagon exactly like this. Like, I think it was a Ford Country Squire or something like that. It had the fake wood paneling, you know, along the sides. Mm -hmm. And as I'm watching this movie, I just kept thinking the whole time, man, if I had seen this movie back when it came out, I'm pretty sure we would have done up the Country Squire with chandeliers (laughs) and a disco ball. (laughs) Nice. Oh man, my my friend used to call it the magic wagon. We literally drove that thing into the ground. My God. But but you know it would have been so much better with chandeliers on it, though. That's for sure. And the disco ball hanging yeah. from the rearview mirror. Oh. Yeah. No, I, I was reading that apparently. Um, again, I'm not a car guy by any stretch of the imagination, but um, like so many other things, nostalgia drives a lot of what happens today. And for a lot of car people who have like these like. People, as they come into money later in their life, want to buy the car they had when they were, you know, 17 years old or the car that they learned to drive in. And so you're getting all these people buying these old cars and fixing them up or blinging them out or whatever. And apparently this this idea of the escape from New York, the 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 station wagon you described, the Isaac Hayes car with the chandeliers and the disc ball. Apparently this is like a big thing in the car community where people actually bling out their cars with stuff like this inspired from this movie. And I thought, wow, that's awesome. So, and it's funny because I don't see this movie as being, you know, influential in any way. Like at least if you look at John Carpenter's big trouble in little China, it's become a bit of a cult film. You know, it, that, that movie was was kind of fun to watch. And, and so I think people remember it fondly. And but this movie, like, I, I don't see the same thing. I don't see people that, you know, really love this movie. And, you know, it's endured over the years. I don't know. I just 
I just I just don't see it being popular. I have a question for you in regard to the cassette tape at, at the end. Yes. It, it obviously had some significance. I mean, Pliskin stole it, right? And then replaced it with some cassette of this like bad music on it. And then he like destroys it at the end. So what was on the cassette tape that was so important? It, it seems to me like it was an important plot point, but I, I had no idea what the hell it was going on. Yeah, they talked about it at the beginning. They were saying that the president, they were talking about nuclear fusion or something and how the president was going to make an address and and share this information with uh, the, the other rival nations. I think it was China and Russia were at this summit. And so that's what was on the tape was this this scientist giving this lecture or the describing how to do this this nuclear thing. And even when Pliskin gets the tape and he's he plays it in the car just for a few seconds, you you hear some sort. I assume it's supposed to be like a scientist rhyming off scientific sounding stuff. But they do address that right at the beginning where they said we want the president because he's got this briefcase and in the briefcase he has this information. Again, it's just it's a MacGuffin. It's a plot device to mm-hmm. to further motivate because when he finds the president, it's well that's not good enough. The president's great, but without the tape, it's a package deal. So it just further adds to the the tension, the suspense, the 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 drive of the character. Well, I'm on the clock. Okay, finally found the president. Oh, not good enough. Now you need the cassette. Oh my God, where are we gonna find that? So you owe me one hour and thirty nine minutes of my life back, and I want it. So. You and I are going to a hockey game this weekend. We're getting together and hanging out. And after the game, I'm going to make you watch one of my movies for an oh hour and 39 minutes as payback, probably Ishtar. So just I was going to say, uh, as long as not meatballs or Ishtar, good. <laughs> and meatballs is good. Anyway, so uh, all right. So I what sat. Would, so Chris, what would you give this out of ten? Probably a four, three or four. wow. Yeah, I got to give this a solid eight. I can't wait to watch this again. God, we're so different on this one. I tell you. All right. Fun with Caveman. All right, Derek. In keeping with the spirit of Escape from New York, I'm going to go with a familiar format for trivia this week. We've done this many times. So I give you the year and the synopsis of a film. All you have to do is name the movie title. Okay? Okay. Common thread. All the movies have the name of a city in the title. Okay. All right. Okay, that's fair. Yeah. Super easy. 1993. Okay. When a man with HIV is fired from his law firm because of his condition, he hires a homophobic small-time lawyer as the only willing advocate for a wrongful dismissal suit. Philadelphia. Of course. I'll start you with some easy ones. 1981. Oh, great year, right? Two American college students on a walking tour of Britain are attacked by a creature that none of the locals will admit exists. Oh, uh, this is uh, an American werewolf in London. 1993, a recently widowed man, man's son calls a radio talk show in an attempt to find his father a partner. Oh, this is um, it's the Tom Hanks one, right? It's um, Sleepless in Seattle. I've, right. I've never seen. I've never seen it. Never seen it. It was pretty good. 1995. Ben Sanderson, a Hollywood screenwriter who lost everything because of his alcoholism, arrives in a new city to drink himself to death. There, he meets and forms an uneasy friendship and non-interference pact with a prostitute. Yeah. 
Um, I know the city is Las Vegas and it's Nicolas Cage won the Oscar and it was called, it was called, geez, I haven't seen this since it came out. It was called, was it just called leaving Las Vegas? It was okay. Nice. In deference to my good friend, Luke Martin, here's a newer one for you. 2013. Hell, almost like yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> Except this movie takes place in the 80s. So 1985 Dallas, an electrician and hustler named Ron Woodruff works around the system to help AIDS patients get the medication they need after he's diagnosed with the disease. Yeah, this was a great movie. Dallas Buyers Club. Okay. You ever see that? You ever see that one, Chris? No, I haven't. It's really good. Jared Leto won an Oscar for it. Yeah, it's from 2013. It's, it was it's, great. It's too new for me. Okay, 2006. A teenager becomes a major competitor in the world of drift racing after moving in with his father in Japan to avoid a jail sentence in America. Um, does not sound familiar at all. But given your clues, I'm gonna guess. Was it? One of the Fast and the Furious movies, I think it was called The Tokyo Drift. Yes, it was Fast and the Furious Tokyo Drift. These millennial, have, these millennial movies. Was it like no, part three no, or part no. four or something? No, there's no number on it because now these millennials, they, they get they have so many sequels, Derek, they just stop putting the numbers in the titles. You know? Yeah, because that's so. not confusing at all. Yeah, of course. All right, 2008. Two friends on a summer holiday in Spain become enamored with the same painter, unaware that his ex-wife, with whom he has a tempestuous relationship, is about to re-enter the picture. Uh, I'm going to guess, I, I like this is an out-of-the-blue guess, is it um, the one with Javier Bardem? It's um, Vicky Cristina Barcelona? Yes. Nice. I remember the trailer. That's that's what sort of mm -hmm. did it for me. Uh, and uh, Penelope Cruz won the Oscar for that one. I think. Really? Yeah. Yeah, she wow. did. Okay, 1984. A Russian saxophonist visiting New York with a circus troupe suddenly decides to defect from the USSR during a shopping trip to a department store. But he finds adjusting to American life more difficult than he imagined. What was the year again? 1984. The only movie that I can even remotely think of that might fall anywhere close to this was Moscow on the Hudson. You are correct. Wow. Right. Who was in that movie? Why does that sound familiar? It was Robin Williams. It was Robin Williams. Okay, yeah. that's where my mind went. I'm like, that's the one with Robin Williams? Never seen it, but All I right. remember it. I remember hearing about it. All right, going back to 1977. Oh boy. An egotistical saxophonist. Oh, back-to-back to back saxophonist. I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> All right. In this one, an egotistical saxophonist and a young lounge singer meet on VJ Day and embark on a strained and rocky romance, even as their careers begin a long uphill climb. Wow. Hmm. Doesn't sound familiar. The only movie I can think of from 1977, it was 1977, right? That's correct. I'm going to guess Star Wars. City no. in the title is New York, New York. Oh, sure. You sure it's not Star Wars? It sounds a lot like Star Wars. Yeah, Star Wars is not a, is not a city. Okay, 1984. Best friends and their daughters vacation in Rio de Janeiro 
only for one to fall for the other's daughter. Typically creepy eighties movie premise for you. And it's probably a comedy. Like it's probably played for laughs. Is this, um, this is that creepy one with, um, Oh geez, the guy who played Alfred in the new Batman movies. What the hell is it? Michael Caine. It's Michael, Michael Caine. It was. Uh, give me a second. I'll get it. It was. Uh, blame it on Rio. Indeed, it was. Okay, 1986. A rich, but troubled family finds their lives altered by the arrival of a vagrant who tries to drown himself in their swimming pool. Oh. The only reason I know this is because I gave you almost this exact same question when we did a different movie. This was Down and Out in Beverly Hills. Yes, it was. Bette yeah, Midler. Bette Midler running did, around yelling, call 911, call 911. I've <laughs> never seen it, but when we did the Beverly Hills Cop movie, mm-hmm. oh, I right. gave you trivia with all the movies that had the word Beverly Hills in it. So that's the only reason I knew that answer. All right. 1988. In 1943... The crew of a B-17 based in UK prepares for its 25th and last bombing mission over Germany before returning home to the USA. Wow. What year? 1988. Wow. City uh, Memphis Bell. Memphis Bell. Oh my God. Yeah. He's got to remember the, the common thread. Plane. City. That's yep. the only reason I was like, ah. all right, two more. 1972, going way back. A young Parisian woman meets a middle-aged American businessman who demands their clandestine relationship be based only on sex. Jeez. Uh, well, you said Parisian, so I'm thinking it's something Paris. It's like... Afternoon in Paris, something. I don't know. Afternoon in Paris? Last Tango in Paris. Tango in Paris. Okay. Never seen it, but I was like. Marlon Brando. Okay. Last one. 1988. The police academy's commandant will be honored at a police convention in Miami Beach. At the airport, he picks a wrong bag with stolen diamonds. The owners want them back. And I need the exact. I was going to say, I've given think, you a lot of clues. Yes, I think. And I'm ashamed to admit if this is right. I saw this in the theater. It was police Academy. I want to say five assignment, Miami beach. <laughs> well done. I wanted the exact wow. title. It was you number five. It was five. Movies. That was, well, that's gotta be a C movie. Yeah. No kidding. It was just and that was the one garbage. that even Steve Gutenberg went. I've already done four of these movies. I'm uh, not coming yeah. for that one. That script is terrible. And they're like, don't George worry. George Gage was like, I'm all in. I'll still was, do it. <laughs> was it one of the Baldwins, the main guy in that? I th- oh, I don't know if he was or not. I can't remember that. Anyway, but, yeah, there you are. Oh. When Gutenberg's passing on your part five. <laughs> when Steve Gutenberg has had you enough. You should really be questioning whether or not this movie is worth making. Wasn't Wayne Gretzky's wife in that one too? Oh, she might have been. Yeah. I think she was the love interest. That's, yeah. yeah Janet Jones. Yeah, I think you're right. There you go. Right. Yep. Jeez. Yeah. Good, good don't waste Lord. your time on that one no. it was awful you could just just stop right there you could just stop after the first the first movie was pretty good i remember it was shot in toronto yeah. it was a lot of fun then it was just done dumb after that like they were just yeah. finished okay so um we spent the last three shows in 1981 um we'll probably get a little bit more recent with our next show so what do you say we come back with like a topic of some kind and, and I love do something, that idea. you know yeah. so 
Um, and, well, you and I can figure out what that's going to be, you know, between sure. now and then. But anyway, it's a lot of fun. Um, you did really well on the trivia, by the way. You only got one wrong. Just the no, I, I missed the, the soft one. core porn film with the I missed Marlon the Paris Brando. one, and I yeah. missed uh, one other one somewhere in there. There were two I missed. I don't know. But yeah, there was a lot of B movie. There was a lot of crappy movies in there that either I've never seen and I had to guess. Or oh, New York, New York. You didn't get that, that one was with the, the yeah, with uh, yeah. with Liza Minnelli. Are you sure that wasn't Star Wars? Nineteen seventy seven. Were there any other movies other than Star Wars that year? Because that's the only one I remember. Yeah, there's probably a city named Star Wars somewhere right now. So well, I'm anyway. sure. All right, so lots of fun this week. Uh, we disagreed on the movie. Oh, well, makes for a more interesting show. You were I wrong. I was right. That's yeah, all well. we need to know. <laughs> That's all we need to know. So we're good. Um, so anyway, um, until next episode, this is Chris McBrien on behalf of Derek Meyer saying thanks for listening to the show. This is Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World. You can contact Chris and Derek at popgoesyourworld.com. Please take a minute and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show.